In 2 Timothy, we read that we are to endure hardships as good soldiers of Christ. In Christianity, we are soldiers. We are in a battle. I'm afraid that in our time when the physical aspects of this battling are, are so rare, in fact, the only stories of I know that have any physical elements to them would come from overseas and other countries, and to call them secondhand would be just a bit too direct. The most that we get into the battle here is some verbal confrontations, perhaps, but I know of no one personally who's ever been physically assaulted, beat, imprisoned, or anything along that line, but we are in a battle and it is a very serious battle and when we become a part of Christ's army we do so with a view to serving faithful even unto death even if it means the giving up of this very physical body which I understand in our time is not highly likely not least here in America but still we have an attitude that doesn't worry about the physical body. It has a priority on the spiritual so that when we do step out of this body one day which we all will do one day and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we stand before the one who can kill the body and destroy the soul in hell, we hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so it is a very serious battle. It is a very eternal battle. And it can get bad sometimes. Now again, here in our place in America, the idea of it getting bad and getting rough, just, I can't even imagine it. I just don't even know how to begin to wrap my mind around it. When I hear the stories from other countries and other places where people are persecuted and literally murdered at times because of their faith, it just sounds so Hollywood. It just sounds so unreal that I just don't believe I can honestly understand what's going on. Oh, you hear the report, but it's just, it's not here. It's not something we've experienced. But it has been something that people have experienced over the years, such as Revelation 2.10, where he said some would be thrown in the prison that they might be tested and have tribulation 10 days. And he said, be faithful unto death. He said, if you even have to die, that's what Christianity is about. That's the devotion. That's the dedication. That's the focus that we make as we contemplate serving our Lord. This is not a social club, unfortunately, in America and some other countries, I suppose. It is very much, much more a social club than it is what we're looking at in Revelation 2.10 or what we think about in Matthew 10.28 about not fearing those who can kill the body. The idea of war and battle and enduring hardships in the physical sense anyway are so few and far between that Christianity and the idea, well, Christianity in America, when you say fellowship, what's one of the first things people think about? When they say we had a good fellowship the other night, one of the first things that comes to mind is that means somebody had some really good roast beef or somebody barbecued up some good barbecue and there was some good apple pie that Aunt Mabel made or whoever. And when you say fellowship in the context of Christianity, I'll guarantee you that's almost always the first thing that comes to mind in an American context when we talk about Christianity and we talk about the work and the things that are being done. It is more of that party social club idea, which is really quite a shame because the spiritual battle, even though the physical aspects here are much more desirable than they were in times past, the spiritual battle is still very real, folks. This is something that I think it's easy to lose sight of in that in this spiritual battle, when the dust settles and the dust will settle, and when that final pronouncement is made, those who have not put Christ on in baptism, those who have not been washed in the blood, those who stand outside of the blood of Christ will be identified as the enemy of God. And as the enemy of God, whether we call that individual my mama, my son, my daughter, my grandchild, my aunt, my uncle, my best friend that I worked with for 50 years, whatever we call them, as they stand there outside the blood of Christ, He calls them the enemy. 
And as you are looking at the passage here out of Revelation chapter 20, he said, anyone who is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. We still fight that same battle. That is the same battle today as it was 2,000 years ago. And all of those who are not identified as children of God will be cast into the lake of fire. Whether we have physical persecution or not is irrelevant. The end result is the same, eternal condemnation. Thus, we are called to fight the good fight. We are still in that fight. And I am appreciative in so many ways that the external elements, the physical persecutions, are not like they have been in the past. But yet the battle is still very, very, very serious. And those who lose, lose everything forever and ever. And thus, we're going to talk about fighting the good fight. And we're going to develop this idea just a little bit about the soldier analogy that Paul uses. Because Paul uses the idea of fighting in the soldier quite a bit, which ought to impress us somewhat. And we're going to just simply start with the idea of our enlistment. And we'll start out simply that you don't have a choice. As we extrapolate from, again, Revelation 20, verse 14 and 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. We do not have a choice. We have an idea, especially since out of the 70s, and if you don't remember prior to the 70s, and I know a lot of you do, but, you know, in the 70s they decided to take away the draft. And it became a, a voluntary army. And all our armed forces, you got to get up one day and decide whether or not you wanted to go serve your country or not. And that's the way the law is, and that's fine. We don't have a problem with it. But the danger here is, is that we took the idea of a voluntary army that we have and we let it affect our thinking about the Lord's army. And thus we think sometimes this is a voluntary army. Folks, this isn't voluntary. He commands all men everywhere to repent. In Luke 13 and 7, 5, excuse me, he says if you don't repent, you're going to perish. The point is quite simple. The enlistment is something that must be done because when the dust settles and it is all over, whether at the end of your life or the end of time, if a name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that person is lost forever in eternal hell, the lake of fire as John called it there in the book of Revelation. That is how serious this battle continues to be. And again, I'm appreciative that the externals on the physical level are not as horrendous as they have been in times past. The fact remains the end consequences are just the same as they have ever been. Their eternal condemnation in a devil's hell that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever. That is the battle that we have been called to fight. That is the one that we enlist to fight in on the Lord's side because there is no option here, really. Now, I realize a person can refuse to enlist. They have an option in that sense. But it is not an option without consequences, if you understand. There was a time in our country when you were required to serve in the military and the draft, registering for the draft was required. And there was in that same sense an option not to do it. You could go to Canada or you could try to hide out in the hill somewhere and you could just refuse to register or refuse to show up when your number came up or what have you. But if you did that, there were consequences, remember? And some people chose prison over serving their country as they revolt, rebelled against the Vietnam War. And we won't try to understand all the political aspects of that, but you understand what I'm saying. We can refuse the call. We can tell the Lord, no, I will not serve in your army, but there will be consequences to be paid. This is not an option that we have been given, such as would you like iced tea water or Diet Coke today? Now, there is an inconsequential decision to be made. 
we have a decision to be made that is going to affect all eternity. And thus we have our enlistment. Now, oftentimes we'd go here and talk about hearing, faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, and that would be a good line of thought to go down. However, I think probably most of us understand those things. If not, I will be glad to discuss them with you on an individual level or in a sermon later on if you'd like. But I'm not going to go that avenue right now other than just to mention them as I have. And if you have not yet put Christ on in baptism, as is taught in Galatians 3.27, then we're going to encourage you to do so. And at the end of the service, we'll sing a song, I believe that's 642. And if you're willing and ready to be do the thing that you've been commanded to do, then we're here to help you do that because that's what this unit of the Lord's Army is all about. Now let's talk about our training for a moment. And this again, a rather simplistic, but nonetheless, I'm going to emphasize it. Of course, we study the Word of God. We want to rightly divide the Word of truth. Verse 16 needs to be added to this quote where he goes on to say, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. As we practice and learn, and this is, we can sum this up in my favorite daily Bible reading. Read your Bible. I don't care if you read a paragraph, a verse, a chapter, for ten chapters, just read that Bible, make it a constant part. This is the core, the fundamental foundation of your very training is the book. As you read that book, keep your focus on the book, keep your focus on the will of God. And when people start talking about silly and crazy things, profane and idle babblings as Paul calls them here, ignore those. Now let me qualify just a tad. You're sitting down at Hardy's, you're sitting down at McDonald's, you're sitting at the beauty parlor, you're sitting with your buddies on the creek bank fishing or whatever you happen to be, and you're just chit-chatting and having a good time. Go ahead and talk about whatever you want to talk about. You want to try to figure out if Adam had a belly button or not? I don't know. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? What kind of fish did swallow Jonah? All of those big questions that we get into sometimes. Go ahead and enjoy the conversation if it is truly an enjoyable conversation. But if it gets into areas where people are going to start getting a little bit crazy on you, Paul said, shun those things. Get away from them. Look, this is eternity. This is heaven and hell. We don't need a lot of garbage in our head. We may need to be aware that it's out there so we can avoid it. It's kind of like keeping it between the ditches, if you know what I mean. You don't want to be in the ditch, but you don't want to focus on the ditch all the time. You want to focus on where you're going. So you want to set your mind on things above, as Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, as opposed to focusing on everything that's negative. And so there's a time where you look at some stuff and you just say, no, I'm, I'm not going there because I've still got to learn this over here. And there's going to be a lot of learning that keeps going on. In 2 Timothy 3, again, the focus is the Scripture. Your training is the Word. Now, I'm not against you reading other books. I have a library full of other books. But you want those books to point you back to the Word. You want those books to help you understand the Word. You want those things to help you get into the Word so you learn what you ought to be doing to see yourself in the mirror of God's Word so that you can be growing and developing and becoming a stronger Christian. And this all gets back to the Word. Now, there's a lot of good books out there, and I'm not going to give them all a blanket approval, and I'm not going to give them a blanket condemnation. There's some good ones, and there's some garbage. You've got to be careful. If it doesn't build on the Word, and it doesn't take you back to the Word, then it's probably garbage and you don't need to be messing with it. And you're going to have to make that judgment yourself. I'm sorry, but that's kind of the way this works. Unless you want to bring it up and have somebody flip through it for you, but then chances are we'll tell you it's garbage and you'll be mad at us for not approving the book. So, you know, be really careful. And you want to get back to verse 17 because it's the Word that makes us complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's where we keep coming back to back to the Word, that equipping that God equips us unto. And so He gave us our sword, our armor. He gave us everything that we need, our strategy right there in the Word. And so learning the Word is the basis of what we're going to stand on. That is how we're going to fight this good fight so that when the dust does settle, and it will, and we stand on one side or the other, 
We'll be standing on that side where he says, well done, thou good and faithful servants, as opposed to the other side where he says, that's the enemy, and has them cast into the lake of burns of fire and brimstone. Now let's continue this idea of the training a moment, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. You don't need to be changing it. I know that people think times change. Economically, times change. Won't argue with that for a point, for a minute. Uh, technologically, times change. Absolutely, wouldn't argue with you on that one for a minute. Spiritually, nothing changes. Spiritually, it is the same battle it has always been. Spiritually, you've always had to stand upon the Word of God. Spiritually, you never added to it or took away from it, whether you're under the patriarchal age, the mosaic age, or as we call it now, the Christian dispensation. You always had to rule. Don't add, don't take away. Moses was quite adamant about that particular rule, and the New Testament is also. And so as you pick up your Bible and you start to study and read, understand that you don't need to innovate. You don't need modern ideas. You don't need anybody coming along saying, well, this is 2011. We need to make some changes. We need to understand that God saw the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46 and 10. And he knew that 2011 was going to be here. He knew that October the 9th, 2011 was going to be here. He knew that one day this building would be here and this little heavy guy would be standing up on this platform preaching this lesson. And he wrote that book exactly the way he wanted it for this very day. And for the next 10 years down the road and the next 100 years down the road and the next 1,000 years down the road, if that's how long he chooses to let this go on, or another 10,000 if that be his will, he wrote that book the way he wanted. And what we need to do, what we need to understand as soldiers of Christ is in every age, his word furnishes us completely to every good work that he enlisted us to achieve. And if his word doesn't furnish us unto that good work to achieve it, then that wasn't one he enlisted us to achieve. I'm not saying that the other things are necessarily inherently evil. I'm just saying when he enlisted us to achieve good works, the book, the Bible, tells us the ones he assigned to us. And we do not have a responsibility or an accountability to achieve good works beyond those given to us in the Bible. As Christian soldiers, we keep our focus on the word of God. Now this gets tough. Because we do live in a wonderful time of technology. I wouldn't give up my iPhone for nothing. Now, just before the family tells you the rest of the story, I really didn't want it really bad, and I kind of whined about having to have it. But now that I got it, I don't want to give it up. But I tell you what, that's got nothing to do with Christianity, does it? Christianity is about getting on that book, chapter, and verse foundation and building solid right there. So we don't go beyond those things that we were taught, as he would say in 2 John in verse 9. Philippians 3.12, there's another aspect of the training that we've got to mention, and that is you're always going to be training. It's wonderful that you get the big stuff out of the way. Now, that's really not the right way to say it, but I don't know how else to do it. It's wonderful that, you know, in the beginning you can say, well, I'm not supposed to cuss, I'm not supposed to drink, I'm not supposed to go to tunic, and, you know, you got the obvious things, and you can say, I've got to stop all of that and you get that out of the way, and it's history, and you look back over your shoulder a long time ago, and you remember when you used to do some of those things, and you kind of wonder, how could you have been so green and dumb? But we did them, and most of us did, and, and you leave that on. But as Paul said, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on. And in our training, we keep pressing on. We are not in heaven yet. We are on the straight and narrow road that leads to eternal life. I'd agree with you there. But my inheritance, as Peter would say, is reserved in heaven. And while I've grown to really enjoy Pine Bluff, this ain't heaven. I'm looking for my inheritance over there when the time comes. And so we keep training and learning and life keeps teaching us as we go on. And I don't care if we live to be 143. If we still have our mind about us, 
there'll still be things that we can learn and understand and continue our training at some level or another. Now the trick here is, I think, and I'm not going to elaborate on this one much, but I think the trick is to keep that training relevant to your own development. I think that's the trick to effective training. We could learn a lot of things. I was at the bookstore, took a couple of preachers up Thursday, and we were just wandering around Mardell's, and I came across a computer program that was going to teach me Hebrew. It was just $25. Now, computer program, that's a good price. But I really got to thinking as I stood there reading the box, how bad do I really need to know Hebrew? And I thought, how many of you guys know Hebrew? I don't even know the Hebrew alphabet. And I thought, you know, that's cute, but that's really not relevant. Now, there may be a time when learning Hebrew would become relevant, but right now Hebrew's not relevant. There are other things I still need to learn. And so you take your training, whatever it is, and this is where you've got to know yourself, not somebody else, but you, and say, where do I need to be growing? Where do I need to keep pressing on that I can lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me? How do I do that? That's keeping it relevant. If you keep it relevant, then your training will always keep you moving onward up that straight and narrow road. Now let's talk about our mission. We're going to break mission down into two parts. I think we could break mission down into three or four or five, six, however you want to do it. For this lesson, we're going to do it in two parts. We're going to do the inner and the exterior mission. First, we're going to talk about the inner, and the reason I chose to do it that way is simply I was thinking of Matthew chapter 7, where he said, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll be able to see to remove the moat from your brother's eye. And so the suggestion is quite obviously there that you take care of self first, and then you go out and help others. I know there'd be a little more to be said about that, but I think that's a good way to start. Paul said he disciplines his body, he brings it into subjection. One of the things about Christianity, and I think that probably, I'm going to call this one of the core focuses of the whole battle that we fight, is internal. The biggest struggles most of us other face really start inside of us. So as Paul said, I discipline my body, I bring it into subjection, lest when he taught others he himself should be disqualified. I think they're really learning to look in here at what you're thinking, what you're feeling, your attitudes, and all of those things that go on within the human person. That's the core of the battle. Because if I can get it cleaned up here, as James said, you know, we're enticed when we're, we devil catches our lust. Well, you see, if I've cleaned it up in here, the devil's got nothing to hook on to. The first place I need to get it cleaned up is in here. I do not have Mark 7, 21 in the verses following on the overhead, but that's where he said out of the heart comes all of these sins, and he lists a variety of sins that come out of the heart. And the verse is very specific. It's out of my heart. So where do I really need to start this battle? I mean, it's good to get out here and talk about the sins of society that we need to address. And yes, there's a level we need to address those. But the first battle I need to fight is the battle in the heart and start getting this soldier right so he can really get out there and make a difference in the way he ought to. But this battle is going to go on for a long time. Remember that was Paul that said, I press on, not that I've already been perfected. He was getting near the end there, we think. Proverbs 16 and 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit better than he who takes a city. Now again, learning to rule the spirit, learning to understand why you're thinking what you're thinking, learning to understand the deeper reasons for why you're feeling what you are feeling and understanding that within the context of your learning to rule your spirit, learning to be a stronger, more faithful disciple and to bring your whole body into subjection. Or as Paul would have said in 2 Corinthians 10 and 5, to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is that battle that we're talking about as we talk about the inner battle. I think this is the battle that most people are afraid to fight. I've said recently that the straight and narrow path gets the straightest and the narrowest when it leads straight through your own heart. 
And I think that's absolutely true. The battle we are trying to get people to fight primarily is the battle that they must fight against sin and temptation and lust and immaturity and imperfections within themselves. And as people begin to change on the inside, guess what's going to happen to society automatically on the outside? We can change Pine Bluff if we can just get Pine Bluffians to change one heart at a time. And as more hearts change, a community can't help but to change. A whole country, an entire globe could not help but to change as the hearts that comprise that population change. And so the priority, again, is about learning to rule the spirit, the inside. And Paul addresses this quite a bit, only I think sometimes the sins he refers to seem so obnoxious to us that we forget the finer elements of it. He said, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, Ooh, that's pretty bad, isn't it? Uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And there are other places that list other sins. And you, you, you look at those, and the first place they've got to be conquered is within. That's the first place we begin our conquering. Because if we don't conquer it within, you know, it'd be kind of like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He taught to others, and then he would be disqualified. He didn't want that to happen. He taught the truth. He gave a lot of good information, no question about it. But he was concerned that he himself also be accepted. He wanted his brethren accepted, absolutely, but he also wanted to be accepted. And so this inward battle, this inward learning of self is also mentioned here in 1 Peter 3, excuse me, 1 and 15, and also 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, this perfecting of holiness, this learning to be holy as God is holy. And the only place that can start is on the inside because this gets to the very core of our being. If we go out and manage somehow to shut down every bar in Pine Bluff, that would be good. But would that make us holy as God is holy? You see, the only thing that can make us holy as God is holy is for us to get inside ourselves, to look into the mirror of God's Word and really make application of that to self on every level that we can understand to make application on. That's where it really gets down to being holy for I am holy. Or as he said, therefore having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so anything that becomes inconsistent with God, spirituality and holiness and righteousness is something that we continue to endeavor to purge out. As he said in another place about purging out the old leaven. And we want to do that within our own heart. So that hopefully we can eventually stand mature, complete, not absolutely perfect. That's one of the places where we mess up on those words. But we can stand before God as a disciplined disciple. One who is mature and able to go forth and do the things the disciple ought to do. And no, they won't bat a thousand. There's nobody ever going to bat a thousand, but it's one you can rely upon and know that he's standing upon the Word. There's your idea of perfecting holiness. Now, that gets the soldier ready, and that is going to be a continuing process, so it is going to overlap with the second part of the mission, which is our outward mission. I've started with Matthew 5:16. Let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What we want to do, and again, it's overlapping, but we want a dual level of success here. You want to get a level of success within your heart where you handle life in such a way that people look at you and go, that's what I want. I want to be a Christian like she is. I want to be a Christian like he is. I want to have that kind of balance in my life, that kind of maturity, that kind of anchor, that kind of foundation under my feet. So then when life does what it does, and life will do its thing, 
I still have that steady focus upon God and that balance and that stability that we see in some people from time to time. We want a light that shines. We want our good works to shine so they can see it and glorify the Father in heaven. We'll be able to teach others. Now, I'm not going to focus so much on the negative part there where he said, by this time you ought to be teachers. But the goal is, is so that at some point we can teach other people. Now, not everybody's going to be able to get up here and teach. Not everybody's going to be able to stand at the podium like we use in our class and teach. But we all teach. Even Titus 2 told the older women to teach the younger women. And a lot of that, I think, was very much an informal setting. And probably the bulk of our teaching, unless you're a preacher, is in a very informal setting where you teach others the things that you've learned and hopefully they'll take up the banner and the cause and they'll begin to learn to fight the good fight also which means primarily for them also that they learn to go within their own heart and learn about the things that they're thinking and why they're thinking it and why they're doing it and why they're lusting for it or longing for it or angry about it or whatever and learning to rule their own spirit one of the toughest parts of the battle, again, I think. But this is what we are trying to do, is we're trying to become people who can be teachers and lead others so that they can partake of that meat of God's Word is what we desire for them. Again, the idea of teaching and going out, the be part of the mission, if you would, is in the Great Commission. That is one of the things that we are supposed to do. We are to go into all the world. We are to make disciples of all nations. And notice verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that Christ taught. Remember my comments there on 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 and 2 Thessalonians 3.15 about you don't need something else, you just need the Word and you need to bring that, your books need to bring you back to the Word. That's where we need to bring people. We need to bring people back to the Bible. That's where we want folks to come in and take their stand. We want them to stand upon that book, chapter, and verse foundation, the Word of God, where we can quote a verse and give them some solid meat to stand upon and begin to fight their battle. And they'll start fighting it within as everybody does. And then they'll reach out and they'll try to get others to fight that battle. And hopefully we'll enlist more as the time goes on. And theoretically, though it's a bit pie in the sky, but theoretically, eventually we'll even make a difference community-wide. It's nationwide. Who knows how far it could go if the true spirit, that fire, that enthusiasm, that love for the first part of the battle really, really took hold. Philippians 2.12, he says, to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. This is really the primary thing we're calling folks to do, isn't it? To work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we, we want them to talk to their neighbor, absolutely. And if we have an opportunity to, to shut down sinful activities in the community, absolutely. We want to do what we can do to aid in that way. But it all starts with the individual heart surrendering itself to God in humble obedience and putting Christ on and His blood washing away their sins and them learning to first walk, or maybe first crawl, and then to walk and then to run, and then to, to be able to, to eat meat, as the Hebrew writer would say there in Hebrews 5 and about verse 12 or 14. And then let's talk as we close about our odds of success. What are your odds of success of standing really before the judgment seat of Christ and Him really saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant? I should have used uh, Revelation 7 and 19, which is one of my favorites along this line where he talks about, He looked and behold a multitude so great that no one could count them, standing with their robes on. And he goes on to describe the scene in heaven of all the victorious there, which is a wonderful verse to use. Shame I just thought of it now, but that would be a great verse to use. Our odds of success are also up to us, depending on how willing we are to see the way of escape. Because everybody gets tempted. There's sin in all kinds of ways, right? And, and Satan has a lot of good technological avenues into us now. And so 
seeing that avenue of escape becomes the key to the odds of our success. How serious are you about it? About really, really getting down to it. Do you really want to see the way of escape? Now, the way of escape, I don't think is always that technical. I don't think it's always that hard to see. I think in a lot of cases, that way of escape is as simple as turning off the TV or turning off the radio or changing the channel. You know, a lot of times it's as simple as not picking up a certain magazine or a certain novel. It's really not that complicated. You see, the problem is that I don't always want to see the way of escape because, as we all know, sin is entertaining on the front end. It's that payoff in eternal hell that's so bad. But on the front side, sin can be quite delightful. And so seeing the way of escape becomes difficult, not because it's difficult, but because I don't always want to see it. And that's part of the challenge. But with every temptation, there is a way of escape, and we can take it if we want to. So our odds of success are really in our hands. Matthew 6, our odds of success are up to us. Do I really, really, really want it? Well, I really seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because if I'll make it a priority, even as the previous verses that we've used have suggested, even to giving up this body if necessary, how are you going to defeat that person? How are you going to defeat the person who is willing to literally physically die and everything in between before death in order to achieve that victory. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? That's amazing. The person who really wants it, they have great odds of success. I'd say assured odds of victory. But those who would fall into the lukewarm category, perhaps, odds there don't look too good. That'd be Revelation 3, 15 and 16. Hebrews 10, 24, as we consider one another, as we work together as a group, which is very important. This improves our odds of success. Now, we have to be willing to listen to one another. Uh, sometimes our ideas of being part of a group is this is going to be a happy back-slapping society and everybody's supposed to tell me when I do good and everybody's supposed to ignore it when I do bad. And I like that in general theory, but it doesn't work in practical application. We need to be a group that lets our elders be the elders they're supposed to be because they look out for the good of our soul and submit to that authority and submit to the things that have been taught. And those who are spiritually more mature than we are or see things that we haven't seen yet so they can come up alongside of us and, and say something that might need to be said without getting mad and quitting. But you know how that works sometimes. You suggest to somebody that maybe a skirt's too short or a blouse top too low or a logo on a shirt isn't the right one to work or maybe they've been watching some of the wrong things on TV or hanging out with some of the wrong people or driving a little too fast down the interstate. You know what I'm talking about. All the common things that folks do. You start getting into that area, now you've quit preaching, preacher, and you done gone to meddling. Maybe you ought to get back to the book. <laughs> well, that is the book. That's just some of the parts of it that we don't want to see. And so if we come together as a family to nurture and support and encourage one another, and yes, admonish one another at times, then our odds of success go way up. Now, one day we can all stand on the other side of the tombstone, as I like to say, and we can all stand together, hopefully on that golden street. And we can say, I remember when, and we did it. We made it. One more verse and we'll close. Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that's the question I'm going to close on. Have you loved his appearing? And I mean love in the sense of Bible love, that love that surrendered and obeyed and gave himself over to the will of God. If you've loved his appearing, you're fighting a good fight. You're doing exactly what you ought to be doing. You're growing, you're developing, you're moving that upward way. That's what Christianity is about.